Hello and welcome to Surveyor Says, the podcast from the National Society of Professional Surveyors. Each week, we bring you fascinating guests that are involved in the profession of surveying. We cover a lot of ground, including table lay talk with Gary Kent, point of order with the NSPS Joint Government Affairs Team, future focus, highlighting current and future leaders of the profession, and everything survey-related in between. Thanks for joining us here on the podcast and hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Surveyor Says. Hello, everyone. This is Kurt Sumner, your host today for Surveyor Says podcast series. Today, my guest is John Palatiello. I think everyone who may be listening to this will recognize John Palatiello's name. Uh, as, as you probably know, John's been very, very involved in the surveying community for a really, really long time. Uh, certainly, he was involved before I ever met him because uh, he was working at ACSM before I got involved myself. So I know he's been at least that long. Um, but nonetheless, welcome, John. I appreciate you being on with me today. My pleasure, Kurt. Thanks for having me. One of the topics, and perhaps maybe the primary topic we're going to talk about today is, is QBS. And I don't know, well, I guess I do know. Not everybody knows what that actually stands for. Even if they know it's about selection, they're not sure what all the letters stand for. Um, I don't know, maybe some people might think it's quibble about services or something, but uh, that's probably not the not the correct uh, way to go to approach it. But it is about qualifications. I'm sorry, go ahead, John. Go, go ahead, go ahead. I said it is about qualifications and the fact that we in the surveying profession prefer to provide our services based on our qualifications and not on underbidding the next guy or whatever the case may be. And so maybe you can explain a little bit, John, for those, or even for all of us, for that matter, just give us a, a refresher on what is QBS. Well, I'll tell you, the first thing, Kurt, if you go into Google and put in QBS, you get a lot of stories about uh, your football team and who's playing at quarterback <laughs> or, or, or what the quarterback controversy is. Uh, but that's not what we're talking about today. Um, uh, QBS stands for Qualifications-Based Selection. And that is a term that has evolved over the last oh, 20 or 30 years to describe um, what we used to call the traditional method or A&E selection. Um, it is selection of a professional to provide architecture, engineering, and related services, which includes surveying and mapping on a competitive basis whereby the firms that are competing for a contract and uh, for the purposes of our discussion today we're going to we're talking about government contracts at any level federal state or local public contracts where the competition um, the submittals by firms is based on the qualifications the personnel the equipment the experience the past performance, the unique qualifications of a firm to accomplish a particular project. Um, that evaluation and that selection and evaluation and competition is all based on the qualifications of competing firms. The most qualified firm is uh, identified 
And then at that price, at that point, price becomes a factor in a negotiation between the, the procuring agency and the selected professional. So it is not a low bid, it is not best value. It is qualifications first and then negotiation of a price. And under the federal law, which we'll talk about in a moment, it has to be a negotiation of a price that is fair and reasonable to the government. And so everybody understands once one is selected through the QBS system or process, that's kind of the beginning of the negotiations. You've, you've been selected because you've been chosen as the, the entity best able to perform this particular task. You have been deemed the most qualified. Yes, sir. Exactly. And then, and then you go into the, the negotiation on cost which I uh, assume or actually know could still kick you out, right? If you can't come to an agreement on cost. Yes, what, what occurs is when once the most qualified firm is determined and, and we're discussing an abbreviated uh, sort of Reader's Digest version of the process rather than walking through the entire flowchart, but, but your point is, is absolutely correct. So once that most qualified firm is determined, the procuring agency sits down and develops a government, an independent government cost estimate. And that is what the government uses to negotiate to get to that fee that is fair and reasonable to the government. And under the law, um, if that agreement cannot be reached, then the um, government agency is, of course, free to terminate the negotiation, go on to the second ranked firm, um, and so on. Or sometimes an agency may say, boy, we really underestimated what it's gonna cost to do this. So they may go back and do a new government estimate or they may do a re-procurement, um, but the government always holds the cards. They have the final say as to whether they execute a contract or not, because again, the law says ultimately the fair the fee has to be fair and reasonable to the government. So but the point, but the point, Kurt, here is that you select based on qualifications. You're not doing a selection based on price. And the reason is that you know these services have an impact on public health, welfare, and safety. There are uh, almost always there's some downstream activity the government wants to take on whether it's design or construction or doing uh, permitting or leasing or a resource project or flood control or whatever. Um, and therefore making a small investment in quality at this point provides a much greater return on investment over the rest of the project or the life cycle cost of a program or project that's based on that surveying, that mapping, that engineering, that architecture at the beginning. You know, one of the questions that always comes to mind, and this may be a hard one to, re to respond to, but when you're talking about the, the selectors, who the people who are reviewing the proposals and determining qualifications of to whom they want to speak, I've always wondered, particularly from the surveying perspective, are the people that are reviewing the submittals well enough informed about what surveyors do to understand the difference in what's being offered. 
Well, by and large, if that procuring agency has one or more surveyors or geospatial professionals on staff, they will be part of that evaluation and selection committee. Um, at a minimum, you know, it may, it may not be a licensed surveyor, but it could be a civil engineer, but, but someone who knows enough about the service that's being provided that they can do a, um, a, an educated job of evaluating a, a firm and then being involved in uh, the estimating and then in negotiation. Yeah, so it's, it's, not, um, it, it's not people that are complete laymen. Um, it is wise for the government agency to have knowledgeable technical professional people on their side of the table when they are carrying out a, a QBS selection. Yeah, I recall one of the things that was of some comfort to me back in the day when I would be part of a team uh, pursuing work through, say, the Virginia Department of Transportation. And surveying was a component, design was a component, it's whatever the, all the components may be. But I was always pleased that at least one person on that selection committee was somebody from within the surveying department or the in, in Richmond, because that's where they were always done, but somebody right. who was part of the surveying community within the within the system was part of that. So it, it gave you a little better feeling that they actually knew what you were talking about. Well, and actually the other side of that equation is true as well, Kurt, that if a team is being put together and surveying is part of the scope of work, it's advisable to make sure that a surveyor on the team is part of the folks that are making the presentation uh, or involved in the shortlist interview with the agency and part of the negotiating team because you want a knowledgeable surveyor who's going to be negotiating the surveying fee to be part of that private sector team. So having members of the profession involved on both sides of the equation uh, is part of the recipe for success in this process. Yeah, I agree. And, and obviously, this discussion is not about me or my business, but I do recall uh, when the Virginia Department of Transportation got into a lot of design, huge companies from all over the country started coming in to, to pro file proposals. And, and one of my pitches to them was, um, I know the people, they know my work uh, who are in the Virginia DOT, so I can help your team but I can't be exclusive because um, I want as many shots as I can to get this done. And so I might end up on three or four teams, but it, it was good to, to have that comfort level that you were talking to somebody for your piece of the work that, that understood that. And then you could be of assistance to, to the, prime con the prime contractor, so to speak. Well, one criticism that I often hear from people that may not be um, predisposed to being favorable to QBS is, well, a large business will always win and it's, it's not helpful to small business or the same, the same big engineering firms will always win. And that's not always the case because one of the things the agency may be looking for is What's your no local knowledge? What do you know about the conditions where this project's going to be? Have you done surveys in this area before? Do you know what our surveying procedures are like or how we've done our surveys in the past? So that if you're doing a retracement, you're not starting from scratch. You are familiar with VDOT surveys. So 
there, there's a, a lot of that unique uh, capability and qualification that goes in, and that's part of the intense competition that indeed occurs under QBS. Right. Well, you know, that, that kind of brings to mind the whole the concept of a cuff pace. And I'll let you tell people what cuff pace acronym stands for. But I know that I remember going to cuff pace meetings in downtown DC long before I ever moved to Northern Virginia. I was still back in Blacksburg in those days. So it's been around for a really long time. Um, but I know that you've been very active in it. And if my memory is correct, you were there early on. Formation. I was. I was. So uh, COFPE stands for the Council on Federal Procurement of Architectural and Engineering Services. It's the coalition of the major A&E and related services, trade associations, and professional societies. COFPACE was actually created at the recommendation of Congressman Jack Brooks. And you often hear people talk about the Brooks Act. The Brooks Act is the QBS law for the federal government. Um, Congressman Jack Brooks from Texas was the author of that bill. When he started working on a piece of legislation, he said, you guys better get together. Let's, uh, you ought to form a coalition, get behind this bill, help me pass it. Uh, I need to rely on your expertise as I'm answering questions and trying to move this legislation through. So that was in 1972 when uh, the Brooks Act was originally enacted. A little bit of interesting historic trivia, and I know, um, Kurt, you're a great student of history, and you may recognize the name Theodore or Ted Sorensen, who was President John F. Kennedy's speechwriter, right-hand man. A lot of people credit Ted Sorensen with actually writing a good part of Kennedy's very famous inaugural address, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Ted Sorensen was the original consultant counsel to Coffpace back in the late 1960s, leading up to when the Brooks Act was passed in 1972. And in fact, just a couple of days ago at the, on October 27th, we celebrated the 48th anniversary of when President Nixon signed the Brooks Act into law. So as we look ahead to the year 2022, we will be celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Brooks Act. So COFPACE is a coalition of the organizations. Um, it is less formal now than it was for many years. We used to actually have delegates, members of ACSM or NSPS, um, AIA, American Society of Civil Engineers, the other organizations that are now or in the past have been part of COFPACE. A practitioner delegate would come to Washington as well as the staff of the organizations. Uh, it's now a staff coalition. Um, but we have a rule that we have to agree 100% unanimously before we do anything legislatively. But that is the group that came together um, and was formed and helped pass the Brooks Act. And it has basically been an insurance policy ever since. It is the organization that preserves, promotes, protects, and defends the Brooks Act. And we've been successful in that for these 48 years. So and, with that, uh, 
Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that um, it's an interesting story, as you alluded to at the at your introduction in the beginning of of this discussion. Um, I was the first in-house government affairs director of the old ACSM starting in 1982. And I remember my very first day, uh, this is like the old ACSM building on Little Falls Street in Falls Church, Virginia. Uh, walk in, say hello to everyone. They showed me where my office was and my desk. And there was, remember those little pink telephone message notes that we used to have in the office? Yeah. Well, there was one. There was one that says to John, phone message from, and this is going to be a name that's really going to be a blast for the past for you, especially as a Virginian. MK Miles from the Corps of Engineers called, the Brooks Act is being repealed within the Corps of Engineers. They're taking surveying and mapping out. That was my first day on the job involved in the surveying and mapping profession. So I had the proverbial baptism by fire. And I have been working to promote and protect and defend and advance the Brooks Act ever since. And it's interesting with, with that history, uh, looking back at all the efforts that's gone on and the interest, and uh, it seems as though over time, the interest among varying groups that have been part of Coffbase over time has gone up and down. Some have remained pretty solid, some others not so much, I guess, uh, maybe giving in to what their version of reality is. But having said that, one would think with that kind of history and logic, it's sort of a slam dunk that QBS is the way to go for agencies, in particular, in this case, federal agencies. And you can talk about what states do if you wish. But um, one would think everything's smooth sailing, but that's not really the case, is it? Well, uh, yes and no. We've only had one serious outright threat to the Brooks Act in these 48 years. There was a congressman from Iowa named Berkeley Bedell who woke up one day and apparently the story is that he was on his church board and the church was um, going to hire an architect to, to provide a design for a new church. And he was astonished that the architect was not being asked to submit prices. And I don't know if there was a problem with the project or he just felt that the uh, the idea of not submitting a bid was alien to him. But when he realized that that was also the federal law, he took it upon himself that he was going to change that. And we defeated that very successfully. Um, and that's been the only serious threat over all of these years. But you also have to remember, as I mentioned before, the original Brooks Act was signed into law by President Nixon in 1972. In 1972, everything in procurement was low bid. So the Brooks Act was really an anomaly. It was out of the ordinary. It was a radical departure from the way the government fought everything else. Now, since then, we've had lowest price technically acceptable. We've had best value, we've had past performance as an evaluation factor. Those are all relatively new phenomena. So it's like the old country song. I say that, you know, QBS was for quality and past performance before it was cool, before it was part of other aspects of federal procurement. Because again, we date back to where we were the exception from low bid, low bid, low bid. You select only on one factor and that's price. 
So a couple other questions I want to ask later on, but I'm curious about your thoughts in terms of assuring, and, and maybe assuring is a bad word, but uh, per pursuing is probably a better word. Um, the concept within our national organization and the state affiliates who work with us um, to make sure that all of our members understand this process, whether it's federal. I mean, uh, I know there's a lot of survey work that goes on that doesn't necessarily go through this process, uh, whether or not it should. Um, but I don't, I don't too often see, even in continuing education, for example, uh, an opportunity to share this kind of information with with our practitioners. And and having said that, I realize that there are a lot, fairly large number of our people who would never, ever be involved in this kind of a procurement anyway. Um, but I'm just curious about your thoughts about that in terms of spreading the word, so to speak. Well, number one, this is why I'm delighted to be on this podcast with you today to help e evangelize on QBS, if, if you will, because um, I think that that continuing education informally is very important. Um, I think you're right that there is, um, there's not, I, I think people sort of take it for granted in large measure. So we don't focus on that in our state societies and continuing education. Although I will say that um, anyone who is involved in their state organization that is listening to this podcast that would um, be interested in having me as a, as a guest instructor for continuing education to talk about QBS and how it works and do a webinar or a workshop or when we get back to having in-person classes, I'd be honored and more than happy to, to offer my, uh, my services and availability uh, to teach on that subject. Um, but beyond your point on continuing education, Kurt, I get the impression that um, that qualifications-based selection in the context of, of ethics and professionalism, I'm not sure it's being taught in our two-year community colleges or, or our four-year degree programs uh, in surveying or in engineering like it was uh, decades ago. So uh, I think we do as a community need to recommit ourselves to uh, making sure that every, everyone understands this process and understands why it is in the interest of serving the public and the clients of surveyors and engineers and architects that we as a community do advocate this process as, as opposed to or as contrasted to bidding as a means of uh, retaining a firm to, to do work. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think there might be some opportunities. I know every, every now and then I get an opportunity to talk with a particular class in one of the programs. I just had, a, uh, had one of those the other week. And um, maybe that's a good opportunity for us because it may or may not fit into the curriculum in terms of um, the, the people who are in the program actually being familiar with it even because they may or may not be. Um, but maybe there is an opportunity for us to, to have that kind of outreach with the, with the younger folks. And then again, like I said, just among the surveyors in general, um, I, I'd like to think that every one of us who's a professional surveyor would choose to be selected because we're the, the, the best for that project rather than 
for some other reason, whether it's cost or there's always going to be personal relationships. And that's why we, that's why we do what we do. We, but my perspective on the personal relationships side is that personal relationship is based on work that they know you've done or have done with you before. Um, not because I play poker every, with you every Saturday night or whatever. Um, well, you know, if you, if you play poker with a client every Saturday night and you go up and screw up a survey for them on every Monday, you're not going to have a good personal relationship for very long. So this really is about professionalism and ethics and the ability to provide a quality professional service and not being forced to cut corners and put property or safety in jeopardy as a result because you gotta, oh boy, I, you know, I lowballed this and now I can't make money and I, you know, I'm really gonna have trouble. That's when you start cutting corners and that's when the problems start. And that's why in its wisdom, Congress and virtually every state legislature has, uh, has QBS as laws. That's why the American Bar Association as QBS in its model procurement code for state and local government. It's why the American Public Works Association and the Associated General Contractors and a variety of, of the clients of surveyors and the end users of surveying services and engineering services all support QBS. It's about good quality service that lets a project or a program move forward efficiently because you've invested in that quality up front. I'm, and this is a little bit off, it's not off topic, it's off track a little bit, but I'm just curious, in, in the private sector, of course, there's no mandate that I'm aware of that people to whom we as surveyors sell our services, and I'm thinking particularly here when it's a, when it's a partnership, if you will, where I'm going to be doing work with another professional, whether it's an architect or an engineer, or even another surveyor for that matter. Um, in this, in this uh, family, I guess is the term I want to use, of professionals. Right. Do we, do we and, and I was going to say this, it might be hard to answer because it would mean knowing everything about every business. But I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about, are we treating each other when we're trying to do work together the way we want other people to treat us from the outside when they're making selections about our services? Well, you can't make a generalization and, and everyone doesn't uh, operate or do business the same way. And, you know, there are people that place a higher premium on quality than others. And there are people who place a higher premium on ethics and professionalism than others. But I, I will say this. Um, I also have taught some classes on marketing. And, and the first thing about marketing surveying services is you want to do a quality job, ultimately at a fair and reasonable price, deliver on time, be accurate. Um, and if you do that with a client, your goal is that the next time that client has a requirement for a survey, they're not thinking about anyone else. They're not calling anyone else. They're calling you. I used to have a colleague that used to call it relationship marketing. Yeah. And that, um, you know, I tell students in the classes that I teach that you want to build yourself up as being the subject matter expert on surveying. So that as soon as a client thinks of a survey, they think of you and they pick up the phone and say, Kurt, I need a boundary or I need topo or whatever it may be. 
Um, you know, I need it within 30 days. Um, can you get it done for me? And, and, you know, that's the way you want to do business because that client trusts you. They have faith in you. They know your reputation. They know your quality. They know you're going to get the job done. And they don't go through a, a long and, and detailed uh, procurement process or they don't go asking several folks for a, a price and go to the low bidder. You know, they've got demands on their time. There's the, the time cost of money. They've got schedules they need to, to meet. And so they're going to go to a, a trusted professional service provider. And so even in the private sector, um, you know, a good client is going to use qualifications as the basis for selecting their surveyor. Um, although there are still others out there that, you know, may do it on price. But, you know, your goal is to build a reputation and relationships so that your clients are indeed repeat customers because of the quality of what you do. I think we may have touched on this a little bit already, but are there any specific issues or, or I guess issues is a good term that we're working on, I don't know if struggling with is a good word, but issues that are out there that we're trying to address still today? There are, uh, as I said, we've been very fortunate that the only you know, direct frontal attack on QBS uh, over the years was that one incident back in the late 1980s that we defeated. Um, there have been gray areas. There are, you know, as, as you know, Kurt, as, as our listeners know, there has been an absolute revolution in, in recent years with a lot of mapping and what we now call geospatial technologies and services. And some of those have created maybe some gray areas in the minds of some folks in some agencies as to whether those are services that belong under QPS. So we are continually working to clarify those, those gray areas. Um, as you know, because we're part of an organization called COGO, we had that debate within the geospatial and GIS community. What, what falls under QPS and what doesn't? We're, we're I'd say wrestling or grappling with that as we speak. Um, with regard to cough pace, I think there are two things that um, are really on the front burner right now that we're working on. One is over the last number of years, the General Services Administration, GSA and the federal government has expanded um, what's called GSA schedule contracts. Um, they are um, used to be how they bought desks or furniture or pencils or paper um, products. And over recent years, they have migrated and started offering GSA schedule contracts for services generally and professional services in particular. And so again, that has created a gray area. There are GSA schedule contracts that um, are being abused. They're not supposed to be used for Brooks Act or QBS professional services. Um, but there are GSA schedule contracts that uh, really encroach on, um, I would say not even gray areas, I would say black and white areas. And so we have been working uh, on that. That is a price competition. That is not a qualifications-based selection process. So we believe that is a violation of the federal law. We have been working on other legislation in Congress 
Um, Kauf Pace has been able to get a respected attorney to write a, a, a legal memo that outlines how the GSA schedule contracts violate the Brooks Act. And so we're working on that. It's a problem for our, a lot of our members because when you get on the GSA schedule, you actually have to pay a commission to GSA uh, for the revenue you generate off that contract. And many state uh, licensing boards have laws or regulations that prohibit a brokerage fee, a commission, a kickback, uh, a stipend, uh, any of those kinds of fees that you pay to get work. Uh, there are also a number of states that prohibit a licensed architect, engineer, surveyor from actually bidding. Um, you know, NSPS cannot have an ethics code provision that says thou shalt not bid, but a state licensing board can under the law. So this whole GSA schedule matter is one that we're working on as we speak. Um, and if we have members that can help us with that, with regard to getting licensing boards to rule that this indeed is a commission, and not proper for a licensed professional, or this is a bid and not proper um, or is a violation for a licensed professional. We could use the help of some of our members in making that case and getting those opinions. The other issue that we're working on is the fact that unfortunately, it is taking federal agencies an inordinate length of time to award QBS contracts. Um, not only a base contract, but since many agencies now do what are called IDIQ or indefinite delivery, indefinitely quantity contracts, excuse me, indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contracts, IDIQ. It's basically putting you on a retainer on qualifications, and then they will issue task orders or a specific project against that retainer contract. Well, our experience is that sometimes it'll take one or two years to do the base contract. And we've even heard horror stories that it takes over a year to do an individual task order. So we're working on how to shorten that time, how to make the process much more efficient. Um, I have been working closely with the government on that. One of the things that I've been asked to help with is beefing up their training of government officials on how to do QBS contracting. And they've extended to us an offer that as they're doing that training for government employees, they like having private practitioners come in as a guest speaker or lecturer or instructor. Most of this education is now web-based. So they'd like someone to come in for an hour and give their perspective, what works well, what doesn't work well, what needs to be improved, what are some efficiencies and things to make the QBS process work better. So if we have members that are interested in their, that are experienced in doing government contracting, they understand how the QBS process works and how it should work. If they would like to be one of these guest lecturers or instructors, uh, they should certainly send a resume to you and we'll get it into the system because the government is asking for that input and help. And I think that's a great opportunity for our members. Have we put anything in the newsletter about that? I think we have. And I know it has been in a government affairs reports that we do for you. Right. So um, I, we're about to get to the end of our time, I think. But you mentioned earlier having performed some workshops and what have you. 
Um, this sounds like something that might be a good continuing education kind of thing, but is there other specific ways our members can learn more? Um, we do have a CoughPace website, cofpaes.org. Um, we are in the process of, of refreshing that website and, and putting more information on there. Uh, cert certainly, I'm available as a resource um, uh, if people have individual questions. Um, part of the one of the things that I have on my to-do list at some point, Kurt, is um, I'd like to write a book about QBS. I probably have as extensive a file system and library of resources and materials about the Brooks Act and QBS as anybody. And um, I, uh, I think I owe it to the profession and I would be uh, flattered if, if people would find it useful, but I, I, should, I should put that information together uh, so that it's uh, accessible to everyone. So um, I need to force myself to, to dedicate the time and, and put that book together. Um, but even if you just go uh, on the web and, and do a Google search of qualifications-based selection, there, there is a lot of information out there. Excellent. Well, I appreciate you being with me today, John. Um, very good information for our listeners and for our profession. So um, I look forward to any reaction we get when this one goes live and people have a chance to listen to it. So uh, thanks, well, thanks for being just... with me today. I hope you guys have a great weekend. Same to you, Kurt. Thank you. Take care. You've been listening to the Surveyor Says podcast, brought to you by the National Society of Professional Surveyors. If you have any questions about today's episode or any other topic, please email us at info at nsps.us.com, and we are here to help. Visit our website, nsps.us.com, to learn more about our association, the programs we administer and support, our sustaining members, and information about future episodes of Surveyor Says. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, as well as our podcast host, Podbean. And remember, it's a great day to be a surveyor.